Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Thursday, March the 3rd, 2022, and we'll be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, March the 7th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 98th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show, we continue our mission to bring light to the volumes of evidence surrounding important issues for humanity that our mainstream media distort, omit, or otherwise misrepresent. Tonight, we bring back to bringing light into darkness Scott Ritter, retired Marine well, UN weapons inspector from Iraq, 1991 to 1998. He accurately predicted that Saddam Hussein had no weapons of mass destruction, indicating that our government was lying to us and misrepresenting the truth in order to promote war. Scott Ritter, expert Russian analyst and geopolitical expert. He gives us a geopolitical update and issues surrounding the threat of a nuclear potential war. We also are rejoined by Dee Knight, the author who speaks about the U.S.-NATO-Russia-Ukraine crisis that is ongoing. Last week's show focused on one of the primary reasons Russia has indicated it invaded Ukraine, which was a long history since post-coup 2014 of neo-Nazi elements in the government, as well as on the ground, fighting in the Donbass. This week, we continue our series of shows over the last month in our dedication to bringing to light crucial information for a reasonable understanding of all sides of the issues that are unfolding in the Ukraine. We also wanted to dedicate the end of this show to our great thanks, my great thanks, for the support during the membership drive that we had last week. And I will always be indebted to the following people that will be revealed at the end of the show. So stay tuned for a very important, informationally packed show as we seek to understand what motivated Russia to invade Ukraine and examine if the United States was involved in provoking the invasion. And again, thank you for joining us, and let's get ready to go to war. Informational war, that is. Enjoy. Today is Thursday, March the 3rd, 2022. This show is being taped to be rebroadcast on Monday, March the 7th, 2022. 
here on Bringing Light into Darkness. That's on Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. I wanted to start off by highlighting that the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, on December 3rd, 2010, at their summit meeting in Astana, which is, I think, in Kazakhstan, following up on an Istanbul 1999 visit, these are some 56 countries, including Russia and all the NATO nations. And I just wanted to highlight that in this document, it's just a recommittal. It says, quote, we recommit ourselves to the vision of a free, democratic, common and indivisible Euro-Atlantic and Eurasian security community. It goes on to talk about the principle of indivisible security. The lack of national security for one is a lack of national security for all type of concept. And then in its third premise, or I should say in its third paragraph, it says the security of each participating state is inseparably linked to that of all others. Each participating state has an equal right to security. We reaffirm the inherent right of each and every participating state to be free to choose or change its security arrangements, including treaties of alliance as they evolve. Each state also has the right to neutrality and that each participating state will respect the rights of all others in these regards. And then finally, they will not strengthen their security at the expense or the security of, of other nations. And so I guess for a country, Scott, that has not invaded any other country in the last 20 years under Putin, and he's been in office during that time. And my understanding is that I think Russia has maybe one or two military bases outside of the former Soviet Union, while we have some 700 or 800. I guess I wanted to ask you to share whether the concern Russia has for its national security is real. We know in our own country, we've made false claims. Can you share with our audience the substance behind the strategy of Putin that led to the invasion of February 24th? Well, there's two things. One one is the, the legal framework that the Russians have established here, and, and, and you've touched on it. I mean, it's it's built around this um, around the Astana document and the notion that while nations are free to join alliances, you can't enhance your security at the expense of another. That uh, security is indivisible, and Russia didn't just make this up. They've been saying it from from the very beginning. I, uh, Vladimir Putin stood before the assembled Western leadership in the Munich Security Conference in 2007 and made this very point that you, you can't have a unilateral power or an alliance that expands uh, eastward and threatens the security and that you know Ukraine was was an issue. In 2008, when NATO opened the door for possible NATO membership for Ukraine in the Republic of Georgia, uh, the Russians uh, responded strongly, so strongly that the, the U.S. ambassador at the time, William Burns, wrote a memorandum called Nyet Means Nyet. And that memorandum details in great accuracy the Russian position and says, if we ignore this, then we are setting ourselves up to where Russia will be compelled to militarily intervene in Ukraine, and they will take away Crimea and the eastern districts of Lugansk and Donetsk. So in February 2009, we knew exactly what was going to happen. It was not an unknown. Everybody knew this. Now, people have given short shrift saying, well, that's just a legalistic uh, argument that NATO doesn't pose a threat to anybody. It's a defensive alliance. And Russia is just exaggerating the threat. But the response to that is, is no, just the opposite. NATO may have been in a defensive alliance back in the, when it was first created up uh, till the end of the Cold War, 
But once the Cold War ended, NATO lost its reason to exist. There was no more Soviet Union. And furthermore, NATO had given assurances to the former president of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, that it would not expand one inch eastward. But they did. Now, you, you could say, well, they're just absorbing the former Warsaw Pact to bring them in to enhance overall European security, that you can't leave these former Soviet clients out there festering in uh, potential nationalism issues that Europe will be enhanced by bringing them into the fold and because allies don't go to war against allies and things of that nature. That would fly, except in 1999, this defensive organization went on the offensive against the European state, Serbia, bombing its capital, Belgrade, for 78 days for the purpose of regime change to remove uh, Milosevic from power. The Russians didn't like what was happening there. In 2001, this defensive alliance deployed thousands of troops to Afghanistan as part of a nation-building exercise. Russia didn't like what it was seeing there either. In 2004, they legitimized the American invasion of Iraq by sending thousands of NATO personnel to Iraq as a training mission to rebuild Iraq after the United States illegally invaded and occupied. In 2011, participated in offensive military actions against Libya for the sole purpose of removing Muammar Gaddafi from power. Regime change. NATO is an offensive organization the mission of which is regime change. So now if you're Russia and you're looking at NATO expanding to your borders, you know they're not a defensive organization and you know that they have policies. And we, we know that the Obama reset policy was not about befriending Putin, but getting rid of Putin. You know, they, they, the idea was to replace Putin with Medvedev, Mitra Medvedev, who took over the presidency in 2008. But the idea was to improve relations with Russia as a bribe for Putin to be pushed aside and Medvedev to come in. That's regime change. And when Putin didn't play that game and came back in, they undertook other mechanisms through in the in the guise of democratization, funding so-called opposition political political parties for the sole purpose of undermining you know Putin's legitimacy and removing him from power. NATO and the United States have a policy of regime change in Russia. So when you combine this regime change policy, which the Russians are fully aware of, with an aggressive, offensive-minded NATO organization that has regime change as one of its missions, seeking to enter into Ukraine, bring Ukraine on board as a member, thereby abutting Russia, that's a threat to Russia's legitimate national security interests. And Russia has informed NATO and the United States repeatedly that this is unacceptable. And as William Burns warned in 2009, if this was ignored, Russia would intervene militarily, which is exactly what Russia has done. Yeah, I just want to remind our listeners that we are visiting with Scott Ritter, the former UN weapons inspector. He was right back in 2002. He's got great military acumen around Russian issues, spending many years there in the Marine Corps. Let me ask you this. Putin declared that no one should have any doubts that a direct attack on our country will lead to the destruction and horrible consequences for any potential aggressor. Can you share what you consider or you think he considers is a direct attack on our country? I mean, like NATO involvement in military actions versus Russia in Ukraine, it seems to me that there's distinguishing factors and such. But what would constitute a direct attack on our country? Is he suggesting that I think there's a big stir up 
in, in the American media and throughout our public about, oh my God, you know, he's going to send off nukes and that type of thing, which of course his policy that he outlined many years ago was that he would only use it as a deterrent and stuff. But can you explain what is that potential red line that would be as a rational actor? And and I know you believe, and I I certainly believe, uh, Putin would be a rational actor on the international stage. Well, Putin is a rational actor, and, and Putin is doing nothing that hasn't been spelled out in writing by the Russian government in their nuclear posture, which they've published for the world to see. I think the most recent uh, edition of it is in, in 2020. And in that, they say that Russia will not carry out a, a first strike, that the Russian nuclear deterrent is for deterrence purposes only and will be used only if Russia is attacked first. And they speak of, you know, if a if a nuclear device impacts on Russian soil, then uh, that's an attack and they will respond that there is no escalate to de-escalate. There is no limited nuclear war. If Russia gets hit with one nuclear weapon, they fire everything. That's called deterrence. You see, you start messing around on the fringes with, well, we can have a limited nuclear war. You're not deterring anything. You're encouraging the use of nuclear weapons. Russia's position is an absolutist position. If a nuclear weapon is used against us, we will respond with everything. Russia has also said that, similar to what the United States says. If nations assemble enough conventional power that threatens the existence of the Russian state, then Russia will respond with nuclear weapons. What people need to understand is even though Russia has a large army, their conventional power, they've brought over 50% of their conventional military force into Ukraine, which means they've stripped away their defenses elsewhere, including you know, along the NATO states and the Baltic republics. And so you know, Putin recognizes that if he just said this will be conventional only, there's the possibility that NATO could punch out of the Baltics and seize St. Petersburg and say, we'll trade you St. Petersburg for Kiev. So in order to preclude any idiot NATO thinking they can do this, he said, when we go into Ukraine, anybody who seeks to interfere with the Ukraine operation will be, and even though he didn't say nuked, you read the language, they're going to be hit like they've never been hit before. Uh, So basically he said, this now falls into the umbrella as an existential threat to Russia. If you interfere in Ukraine because we've committed so much of our force to Ukraine, uh, we will view this as a threat to our existence and we will respond accordingly. So is it brinksmanship? Yes, absolutely. But there's no reason for NATO to respond in in Ukraine. In fact, you know, Putin's uh, statement came after both Jan Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, and Joe Biden, the President of the United States, said publicly that NATO will not come to Ukraine because Ukraine is not a member of NATO and is not subjected to Article 5 protections. So it's not as though Putin is, is doing something that's inherently confrontational. He's just letting the United States and everybody know that there's no messing around here. Uh, he's not playing games, and they need to just sit back and let what's happening in Ukraine happen because it's going to happen. For my last question then for you, because I know you're on a time crunch here and really appreciate your time with us here on bringing light into darkness. So for those American public, we are acculturated to be a very ignorant uh, culture when it comes to these things in all of our military uh, interventions. Most of them you mentioned at the top of, of your presentation, right? Libya and Syria and Iraq and on and on. Now, the weaponry and the platforms that, for instance, Hungary has, and I'm, I'm forgetting the other country, the border country with, with the missiles, defensive missile strike capabilities. 
And Poland and, and Romania. Thank you. Thank you. Romania and Hungary. So that has to go because of what is because they can be so easily made into an offensive platform. I mean, for people that are actually trying to understand the real concern that Russia has, it's not just the denazification and the attacks on the Donbass by this Ukrainian army on the and all the Russians, Russian speaking people that have been harmed in that in those areas, but also the actual military encroachment. So when he says you have to go back to before 1997, the NATO status there, he's basically trying to move these platforms back. Are they interchangeable? Are they rather interchangeable? Do they pose a great threat to Russia as they sit here today, right in this moment? They pose a huge threat to Russia, twofold. First of all, these are called Mark 41 Aegis systems. They were designed to operate on uh, U.S. naval vessels, cruisers, and destroyers. They consist of a giant phased array radar that's connected to launchers that contain sophisticated surface-to-air missiles, which have been modified to intercept ballistic missiles. The Mark 41 system is containerized, and in addition to the SM-3 missile, the, the anti-ballistic missile, it can also fire the Tomahawk cruise missile. Now, when that's mounted on a ship, that's not a problem, but I mean, not, it is a problem, but I mean, that's legal. They weren't allowed to be mounted on the ground because the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that was signed in 1997, uh, which got rid of these weapons. When the United States deployed these Aegis ashore systems, so they took the system off the ship and brought it ashore, a giant radar with these missile launch devices, they said they only contain the SM-3 missile. And the Russians went, well, how do we know? <laughs> how do we know? And they said, you just got to trust us on this. Well, the Russians weren't happy with that. The Russians accused the United States of trying to adapt these so that they could fire Tomahawk cruise missiles. Well, when Trump withdrew from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty in 2019, within a month's time, the U.S. deployed Tomahawk missiles in these containers. So the Russians were right the whole time. We're liars, we're cheaters. But now, you know, even if it was only ballistic missile. You know, with arms control, we've been talking about reducing the number of missiles in everybody's inventory, which is fine because we operate under the concept of mutually assured destruction. That is, I have 400 missiles, you have 400 missiles, and we know if I fire one, we get them all, we all die. So we're not going to do that. What happens when you put in a missile defense system that shoots down? Let's say we negotiated our uh, arsenals down to a couple hundred each, and now that we can hit the Russians with a first strike, let's say we take out 70 of them. So now they have 30 or 40 left and they fire those. But now we have a missile defense system that can shoot 30 or 40 down. The Russians are saying, well, wait a minute. You guys have been talking about arms control, uh, but you've modernized your nuclear force. so You can hit us first. And now you have missile defense systems in. They can shoot down our missiles. This is unacceptable. So right off the bat, it's an unacceptable situation to begin with from the Russian perspective. But now you've brought in this offensive capability with the cruise missiles or worse, the United States has developed a, a version of the standard missile, the SM-6, that we call the Typhoon. It's again, fired from the same canisterized system, but this is a surface-to-surface -surface missile uh, that can reach deep inside with nuclear warhead, uh, Russia. And so this is why Russia is saying, you're deploying systems that can hit Moscow in five minutes. That's intolerable. So that's why Russia wants these systems removed. They're inherently destabilizing. They do nothing to further the legitimate security concerns of NATO. They're purely designed to 
you know, defeat Russian capability in a, in a manner that destabilizes Russia. So Russia is 100% correct. These systems have to go. Mm-hmm. Hey, Scott, I know you got to leave, but do you have any final thoughts about the, it seems like the thing on the ground right now is turning back into favor of Russia now that they've got some new commanders and other things going on. Any last reflections on where things stand today on Thursday, March the 3rd? Well, what I'll say is Russia never was losing this fight. I don't know why people think that this war was going to be over in a matter of hours or days. The Russian rate of advance is greater than the German blitzkrieg in in World War II when the Germans moved into Russia. The Russians are advancing at a far greater pace than the Germans were when they invaded Russia. The casualty ratio in battles, normally you win battles by winning the casualty ratio, for instance, like 1.2, 1.4 to 1. For every soldier you lose on your side, you kill 1.2 or 1.4 on the other side. Historically, that means you're going to win that battle. Russia right now has a 6 to 1 kill ratio in its favor. This is a rout. This is annihilation. This is going to end in a Russian victory no matter what. There's nothing the Ukrainians can do to stop it. And I'm not glorifying war. I'm just saying that everybody, there's been a lot of propaganda out there talking about how badly the Russians are performing. They're not. They're performing as they were intended to perform. And at the end of the day, this is going to be one of the um, the great military defeats of modern history. And that that is the defeat of Ukraine. The last note, when we went into Iraq, we destroyed their water systems. We destroyed their electrical grids. Hundreds of thousands of kids died from preventable diseases, et cetera, et cetera. I've been reading how strategically Russia's trying to avoid the grid damages where it, it does not have any military, it doesn't create any kind of military advantage and such. Is that more propaganda or truth? No, it's 100% truth. Um, the Russians and the Ukrainians are fellow Slavs. This is a very sad thing that's happening. This is like brother fighting brother. This isn't like the United States going into Iraq. Uh, we we felt no kinship with the Iraqis. In fact, we denigrated them. We called them um, demeaning names uh, to dehumanize them. Uh, and we had no problem, as you said, with killing 500,000 children, a million children. We had no problem with slaughtering 60 to 100,000 of their troops because they were brown-skinned Middle East Arabs whose lives aren't worth anything. Well, the Russians don't view the Ukrainians that way, unless they're a Nazi, then, then, then they, their life is worth nothing. But for the average Ukrainian, uh, the Russians view them as brothers, sisters, family. And so they've gone in very soft and they've paid a heavy price because the Ukrainian army took advantage of this and ambushed and slaughtered some of their initial units. But even today, the Russians are trying to negotiate their way through built up areas. When the Ukrainian army digs in and fights, then the Russians have to bring firepower to bear, but it's only the firepower necessary to defeat the Ukrainian military. It's not meant to punish the people of Ukraine. Very good. Well, listen, we've been visiting with our special guest, Scott Ritter. He is born into a military family, a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer. He served 20-plus year career, including reaching the rank of major and doing tours of duty in the former Soviet Union, implementing arms control agreements, and serving on the staff of General Norman Schwarzkopf during the Gulf War, and later famously, famously, I might add, as a UN chief weapons inspector with the UN from 1991 to 1998. And I say famously because he accurately predicted exactly what the reality was. There were no weapons of mass destruction. Scott Ritter, thank you for your work. We'll look forward to continuing to read your articles would just tell folks that they can access them on consortiumnews.com. And thank you for your time today. I know you're a very busy man. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. All right, brother. We'll stay in touch. So before we go to a break, I just wanted to 
share the consternation that I have with the very slanted coverage of Putin over the years. I can remember very clearly to this day how Democrats and many Republicans ask when Donald Trump says the electoral process was stolen from him at the last presidential election, show me the evidence. And that's a fair claim. I've never seen evidence to overwhelmingly suggest that that was the issue. However, when it comes to Putin or U.S. intelligence or foreign policy claims, there is no such demand for evidence, despite the long history of being lied to in Libya, in Iraq, in Vietnam, in Afghanistan, in Syria, etc. However, when it comes to Putin, there is no evidence that's been presented, according to Stephen Cohen, who we will allude to, regarding the demonization of Vladimir Putin in the murdering of folks like the Skirple poisonings, like the Russia bounty story, that it was Russia that hacked Hillary Clinton. All of those things have never been proven, but are considered truisms by way too many folks. And in that context, about a year ago today, in an article on March 18th, 2021, by John Haltewanger of the Business Insider, it was entitled, White House Refuses to Call Saudi Leader MBS Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman a killer after Biden called Putin one. And the point is just simple, that the White House had declined to say whether Biden viewed Saudi leader MBS as a killer, despite a U.S. intelligence report said that MBS ordered the operation that led to the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. The White House declined to refer to Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, that's MBS, as a killer, though a recently declassified U.S. intelligence report said he ordered the operation that led to the killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. So while we sanction a third of the population of the world based on not following U.S. foreign policy dictates, MBS doesn't get sanctioned. That speaks volumes if your mind is open to rational discourse. The hypocrisy is staggering, but it is instructive. A nation reveals its character through the following or the not following of basic principles of conduct. In the failure of a responsible media to not point out these hypocrisies indicate that they are a part of the problem, not the solution. Uh, please stay tuned for the second half of our show, but first we need to make a pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is the premier community radio station of the nation. We'll be back with our next guest, Dee Knight, as well as introductory comments by bringing light into darkness after this brief pause for the cause. Don't touch that dial. And thanks for tuning in rather than tuning out.